I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of First Thessalonians. Oh, my, I'm trapped in here just a minute. There we go. First Thessalonians chapter 3. We're in the entirety of this chapter. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we, should suffer, that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Well, we are in the book of Jude, and we are looking at, finally now, the real purpose of the message of Jude. Not that these other messages, as we look at the introductory statements of Jude, were not important. They are critically important, and I hope I made that very clear. That when these men have these declarations at the beginning of their books, they are not something to just glance over and not consider. For they are sharing some of those precious facets of what it means to be a child of God in the midst of them. They are also identifying to whom they are writing, which tells us something, are they writing to me? And so I need to look at those introductory marks and ask the question, is this book for me? Am I among those who have, are called by his name? Are the, am I among the number that he is describing and then also the promises and prayers of God, uh, prayer, promises of God and the prayers of his people for us. Um, this is what God desires in our life. And so these are not things to just overlook, but to steadily consider. But we, now we get to the real force of what Jude wants to discuss. And he introduces it with a very simple but very full exhortation. And that is the word that we have before us here in Jude. And so let's read this verse again. 
Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we're going to look at why a few weeks from now, but we want to really consider as we looked last week at, or two weeks ago at the common salvation, that that commonality is not about being mundane, but rather a shared salvation, that we have a oneness of faith in Christ, that there are not hierarchies, there are not divisions among the people of God, that we are all children of God, adopted heirs of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have the same Holy Spirit, the same access to the throne of grace, uh, same baptism, same Lord of all. And that is what he refers to as our common salvation. And we could go on and on about that. We need to, on a regular basis, talk about that. But now he says, that's what I wanted to really discuss and wanted to really investigate and expound on with you. But there's a treachery out there that has to be addressed first. And so he begins to address that treachery by drawing our attention to a necessity. That there is a necessity to write this exhortation. And the exhortation is very simple, that you contend earnestly for the faith. And this is the phrase that we want to talk about this morning, is what it means to be contending earnestly for the faith. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word and for each one here and, and uh, for this precious time that we can spend with you, with your people, and, and Lord, we do pray that it might truly be of our benefit to be among one another and in the hearing of your word and most importantly in your spirit. And Lord, again, there can be much in our hearts and our lives that can hinder your work and we pray that you might cleanse us of those even now. we might be attuned to your spirit, that we might be hungry and thirsting after righteousness, that we might uh, desire after your things above all things. And as we always pray, when we come to your word, that you might guard us from introducing our ideas and concepts, interposing your truth with them, you might guard our thoughts, guard our uh, responses, that they might be measured and careful, they might be considerate of our ways, that we might um, reflect upon your authority to address any and all areas of our life. So we submit ourselves to you this hour and pray that you might work in our lives in a powerful fashion, by your grace and mercy, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, to contend, whenever you hear that word, that verb, you should immediately understand the concept. For as soon as I tell you to contend for something, you immediately should understand that there is opposition. The word itself means that, that you are, that you are up against an enemy. That there is something that you must engage yourself in as a soldier of faith 
against a common enemy. Just as we share a common salvation, because of that, because we are all one in Christ, the enemy that we are encountering is common. While our experience with that enemy may vary from individual and circumstances and cultures, the enemy himself is a common one. And he is not singular, but really plural. For we have it described for us as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The evil one. And so we have this common understanding that we have this to contend against. That the walk of faith is not a stroll in a flowery, breezy park. It is rather... <laughs> variously described as a race, as a struggle, and as a battle. We are marching to Zion. We are not strolling there. And so Jude begins his admon admonition, his exhortation to his listeners, to the children of God, who have received the call, who have been sanctified, who are going to be complete and glorified in Christ, says, listen, there's a lot of things we could sit around and enjoy talking about, about our salvation. And we do do that. And there's value to that. And there's promise in that. But urgency requires Jude to realize that Amidst all the enjoyment and wonder of the promises of God and the blessedness of the state of being saved and a child of God, as we think about it, consider and, and, and want to dwell on the future that we have, and we, we, we love series on heaven, don't we? We all want to look about that, that, that there's something more urgent that as we understand our salvation, we realize that there's an enemy that we are up against. And enemies. And so we are called to contend. And this word calls us to battle. That we are in a struggle, Paul says. That he, even late in his ministry, recognized that struggle. And as you're going to go through Philippians and you see in other passages of Paul's writing, and we're going to be studying several of them today. Of course, we already read out of 1 Thessalonians 3, which is going to be our main text for the day, as we expand on what the idea of contending earnestly is all about. Paul himself struggled, even late in ministry. So don't think that your mature faith excuses you, that there is, there is a time when I can retire from this admonition to contend earnestly. There is no retirement plan of faith that's on this side of glory. You'll be contending for the faith all your days of walk upon this miserable earth, waiting for our blessed hope, which is not 65. Or fill in the blank. Rather, we are prepared and diligent. And remember, he says that he is going to... Um, Exhort us of the, the, he is necessarily exhorting us to contend earnestly. And we're going to look at some other verbiage that the Bible uses to describe contending earnestly. 
And among those words of earnestly is going to be diligently. That is that we have to keep applying ourselves to us. We cannot just let our guard down. For that, those are the opportunities. That is the time when our enemies will exert themselves and seek to defeat our faith. And that is a phrase that I don't use lightly. To defeat one's faith. You say, oh, it can't be done. We believe in eternal security. Well, I want to challenge you a little bit that the apostles use just such terminology. Let's just look at a few of them before we uh, get into our first, first Thessalonians, just so you can understand the, the absolute necessity of this. Why is this so pressing to, to Jude and to so many of our New Testament writers? Well, because there was an urgency involved. And so let's look at some of those texts before us. And I have a page of them. Yes, a page of them. I didn't get a lot of, because I wasn't planning on preaching today. It's here, so there it is. I didn't get, rewrite my notes. I just scratched out and circled and underlined. So, and I didn't memorize a lot of them. Let's look at several of the occasions where we have Paul's view of what might happen. Let's look at Philippians beginning there in chapter 2. So we're just going to do kind of an overview of several concepts of why this is so necessary that we stay diligent. In Philippians chapter 2, if you look with me in, oh, we'll pick up in verse 14 to start the sentence off and the thought, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hold fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. This is a phrase that Paul is going to use repeatedly in his letters. We're going to see it in 1 Thessalonians. He was a concern not only for them, but for himself. I don't want to be in vain chasing after the Lord, and so I want to press on myself. But I also am concerned for all of you that my ministry was in vain. Was it pointless? Is there no endurance to it? For if you don't endure, there is vanity in our work. So it is necessary that we call one another and challenge one another to endure, to contend. Because there is a danger, there are enemies of your faith who want you to fail. They want your faith to fail in God, in your salvation. And so we have this common enemy and again and again and again, we are going to see throughout the epistles and into the gospels, and yet even in the historical account of the book of Acts, the prophetic word, the wisdom literature of James, in every genre of New Testament writing, and even in the Old Testament, we will find this repeated admonition that we either contend, Stand, let's see, I've got hold fast here in Philippians 2, is hold fast. 
You have to cling to this. You have to exert some effort and energy in this. Your faith is not a passive element of your life. You must be engaged in this process. It is not, and, and our whole format of worship really um, fails in this regard to some degree. Uh, the idea that you sit there and I sit here <laughs> and are spoon-fed through Bible teachers in Sunday school and in church and that you really didn't have to prepare yourself mentally for this. Hopefully you prepared yourself spiritually. It makes it a lot better if you prepare yourself spiritually. It also makes it better, by the way, if you prepare yourself physically for church by simply going to bed Saturday night. It's amazing how much more you'll get out of church when you're awake. Uh, I noticed that last Sunday with our early service, you guys were, or not the early service, the early service was great. You guys were, boing, wide awake. Then you had that huge breakfast. And it was like, I can see some of you just struggling to keep awake. So physically prepare, spiritually prepare, but generally speaking, we don't ask you to prepare your mind. And so, to some degree, we've made your Christian life a passive thing. We go to church, and we are taught, and, and not an active element. And the biblical writers didn't view it that way. You have to hold fast. You have to contend earnestly. You have to stand fast. You have to, uh, let's see, be diligent. You have to be rooted. You have to be built up. You need to be established. You need to take an active role in the preservation of your faith. Because you all are confronting enemies of that faith that are around you. Here in Philippians, the enemy that Paul has in mind in this passage is the world. We have a crooked and perverse generation around us. Do you recognize that? That society itself is at war with you. And when I mean society, I don't mean the media. We know the media is at war with people of faith. It's very evident. But society isn't just the media. Society is everyone you encounter in your life, in your, in your walk out there. It is the atmosphere and the people and the expectations and the values and mores of your coworkers. It is what your teachers and professors, attitudes, belief systems that you're going to encounter it's your family members. For if they are not followers of Jesus Christ, we must recognize them as opposition to our faith. They are opposed to you being a person of faith. They are at war with you. And we have a weird attitude towards our enemies. Do you remember what the Bible's attitude towards your enemy is? Love them. I thought you were going to tell me something else. No, you love your enemies, but you recognize that they are your enemies. Their wickedness and their perversity, they would want to impose and to bring into your life. And we need to stand, it says, hold fast to the word of life. Recognize that you are in the midst of, but yet not of, a crooked and perverse generation. You're supposed to be shining in the darkness as lights in the world. 
So we love these enemies, but we do not participate with them. And this is the confusion that I see going on. I saw it a lot among young people. Uh, even 20 years ago in ministry, oh, well, we, wanna, we don't want to be so different from them that they, we don't ever get to talk to them. Like, why don't you want to be different than the world? They're perverse. They're crooked. They're against God. Oh, please be different. Contend earnestly for the faith, which means you get to put on your uniform of Christ and wear it. For you're a soldier of faith. We don't hang them in the closet, only get them out on Sunday when we're parading with fellow soldiers. They need to be worn out there when you're actually engaging the enemy. An enemy that we love, but we don't want to be stained by where they are. We want to shine and bring them into the faith of Jesus Christ and in that righteousness, but we recognize that in so doing that, that as I engage the world, it is very, very, very easy for me to be soiled by the world. And so I have to be alert. I have to be aware. And the Bible says, wake up. Be alert. Recognize this. You have an enemy. And your faith is in jeopardy. Every day you encounter that enemy, your faith is their target. And so we approach them with caution. We do not lay out our hearts to them, other than that we love you and want you to accept Christ as, our, as your Savior. We do not open our expectations to them. We do not open up our, our dearest intimate relations with them. That's why the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what do you have in common with Satan? That's their father. Who's your father? What do you have in common with them? Oh, well, you know, they're my cousin or uncle or whatever. Put in whatever familial relationship. They're my coworker. They're my fellow alumni. They're my, put in, fill in the blank. None of those are of any significance to you. For we are defined not by any of those familial relations. We're not defined by any of those relationships. What defines us is our relationship with Jesus Christ and that alone. And if you are not for him, you're against him. And we need to recognize the people we are encountering with the gospel, we love them and want them to come to Christ, but it is so easy to forget that they are the enemies of our faith that they don't want to draw us to something beneficial, but to draw us into their perversity. They want to destroy your faith, to become like them in their misery, in their wickedness. And so we are called to be alert, to stand fast, to withstand in the evil day. I have a whole lot of verses here. Let's go, let, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 3. That's our main text today, and it'll work us through all of my points today, and so we're going to talk about what it means. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul has laid 
forward for this body of Christians an understanding of what it means really to contend for the faith, to contend earnestly. He's not going to use that term, but he's going to call them to that action. And he begins by instructing them that uh, you need to recognize you have an enemy. And Paul was concerned about them. Concerned enough that he uh, always is praying for the churches. We saw it in Sunday school this morning. He's concerned enough about their faith to write these letters. But he's also so concerned about the faith of these in the churches that he has reached, the people that he has gone to, that he sends emissaries to them to check up on them every now and then. I am so concerned about you, I needed to check on how your faith is doing. Frankly, if I did this, I think a lot of people would be offended instead of appreciative. I'm here to check in on your faith. If I called you and said, I'm just checking on your faith today, how's it doing? I said, what's he doing? What's he... No, that's what any good commanding officer would do. He would check in on his soldiers' morale and on their skills, make sure that they still have a sharp sword, that they still have their defenses up. He goes to the watch to make sure they're awake and not sleeping. But if a pastor goes about that activity, what does he think of me? Well, I think that like any good soldier, you need to be checked up on every now and then. Put through your paces to remind it that you are engaged in battle. So Paul did the same thing. He was concerned about the security of their faith. And he prays for them. He sends them letters. But, all, but then finally he says, I'm sending you someone to check up on you. And that was Timothy in this thing. It says, I sent Timothy, our brother, minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. It says in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 3. Why? Because he understood that your faith can be shaken. Verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. I was hoping, I was praying, but I wanted to know, is your faith unshaken? Are you contending earnestly? Are you standing fast? Are you diligent? Are you being approved? unto God. I needed to know. Well, what is the occasion that caused Paul to be concerned about the faith of the Thessalonians? Thessalonians. It was the opposition. There was an enemy. In this case, that enemy was persecution, tribulation. And he shares that, that yes, we are enduring it. Um, we've encountered it. You're encountering it now. Um, but we told you when you were with you, and we know that Paul said this in Acts, it says everywhere he went, he said we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And I've rehearsed that verse 
over and over again to your blue in the face over it, but our blue in the face, and uh, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That's our expectation. Paul says, I told you when I with you that we would have much tribulation, and it's just, it's happened just as I said. Because the world, your own flesh, and the devil are your adversaries. You are Christ. You should expect this kind of opposition. And so brace yourself. That's why we put you through training. So that you could defend your faith in those circumstances. You could contend for it. That you can have victory over the enemy. We talked about last Sunday in the early service. The, the power of the resurrection is a victorious thing. The Christian countenance is not one of sour grapes. It is one of the super conquerors who are victorious. For we are soldiers of the cross of Christ and of the resurrection, and therefore we have the winning power at our disposal. It says, so no one should be shaken. And Paul was concerned. Is your faith shaken? In fact, in the Thessalonian church, their faith was being shaken a little bit by some false teaching. It is evident from Paul's discussion here that Timothy came home and said, we have good news of your faith and your love and you have good remembrance of us. In terms of your commitment to God, there is no, no problem about the affliction and distress and the discomforts. We are comforted by that. But we do know that there was something that was of concern to the Thessalonians and that was some rumor mills theologically. Oh, if you die, you miss the resurrection. You miss the coming of Christ. And that was, that was shaking their faith a little bit. Oh, I, I hope Christ comes before I die or I'm going to miss out on eternity. Which, by the way, is exactly the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses. If you die, that's just the end. The only way you get to be part of the kingdom of God is if you're alive when Jesus comes. Where's the hope? Paul says, don't let this shake you. I'm rejoicing that the opposition, the active opposition from the world isn't shaking you, and I'm writing this letter to strengthen you in the area of teaching, and that's really what Jude is going to have to address too. So now we have an understanding that the opposition isn't just the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is. We also recognize that there is opposition where we least expect it. Not outside the camp, but inside. It still comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil, by the way. It's just that the world, the flesh, and the devil aren't just out there. They are too often in here. That there are men that come in, and Jude's going to describe them, that come in, they sneak in, and they look like, sound like, behave like they are of Christ, but then their motives and their interests are really selfish, the flesh. They're really speaking falsehood because they're not acknowledging the truth, but lies, and as of the devil. That they're, what is driving them is their belly, the love of this world. And so, all through the writings of New Testament, we'll find this exhortation. 
An exhortation is simply a, a very strong call to action. Contend earnestly. You must apply yourself to your Christian walk or your faith will fail. For there is only one source of power for the Christian faith, and that is Jesus Christ. If we are negligent in that respect, and we are spending all our time with the world, in the world, around the world, allowing the world to have the primary influence in our life, whether via education or entertainment or conversation, and we are not alert, our faith will become in jeopardy. That is the reality of what Paul was dealing with with these people. And so in verse 5, I didn't, here's again the phrase that we saw in Philippians, here in verse 5 of Thessalonians, for this reason I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. All this preaching of the gospel, all of the teaching I gave you, could it have come to nothing? You see, there was real jeopardy in Paul's mind regarding people's faith. That it could come to nothing in your life if you weren't alert, if you weren't standing, if you weren't armed, if you weren't defending yourself, if you weren't contending, if you didn't even recognize the enemy. So first we need to recognize the enemy. You are soldiers in a declared war, not our declaration, but theirs, defending the cause of Christ. They have declared war on Christ. Nothing new. It's been there for a long time. They hated our Lord. They'll hate you also as soldiers of his kingdom. We are not here to destroy the enemy in the worldly sense that they want to destroy us. We simply want to destroy their lostness and bring them to Christ. They want to destroy you, your faith, in Christ. And so, what do we do? Paul goes on. We know there's an enemy. We have those that are looking out for our souls, the Bible says, and we need to recognize them. We pick up in verse 8. It says, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you all, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. The fact is, is that each one of us are somewhere in a road of our walk with God. We are on the path. We are never going to be developmentally complete this side of glory in our faith. So there is no time to just put the vehicle in neutral and coast. Paul says, I want to come and 
I want to perfect what's lacking in our faith. And one of the aspects of contending for the faith is to recognize, first of all, there's an enemy. Secondly, my skills aren't perfect. I am susceptible to attack. If anyone thinks that they can't be tempted in any area, that they can hold out against any opposition, whether it be theological, doctrinal, or practical, that kind of arrogance sets you up for a complete breakdown of faith. But when we recognize that these skills of the Christian life, these soldiering skills of handling the shield of faith, of, of being equipped with the breastplate of righteousness and the feet shot of the preparation of the gospel of peace and are girded about with, a, with the truth and our sword and hand of the spirit, word of God, that we must continually practice those skills and develop them better and better if we are going to contend for the faith. As good soldiers, that's what we would do. What does a soldier do on their day off? When they are not engaged in battle, they need to prepare for battle. And so we see Paul saying, I want to come and perfect your faith. I want to, I want to make up what's lacking. The fact is, is that, that we can, one of the, in essential elements of church life is that we are strengthening one another's faith. You can trust God. Maybe you don't know this scripture. Maybe you are floundering in this area. Maybe these areas are, are of concern to you. Maybe you're open to these temptations that I'm not so open to. And we can strengthen each other. One of the places we're looking forward to visiting is Thermopylae in Greece. You know it as the place for the Battle of the 300. The Greeks versus the Persians. The Greeks had a simple philosophy. We make a wall. And we stand locked together in that wall. And 300 can take on 30,000. And they were succeeding save for a traitor, they were succeeding. The 300. It is not by our numbers, but by our commitment that we strengthen one another. That we fight the enemies of our faith. This is why we assemble together as often as we can. But we don't. As often as I can get you here. We could do it every day. I'd be up for that, by the way. The early church did it every day, house to house. Was it everybody every day? I don't know. But every day there's something going on house to house in the early church. The whole idea is that we're going to strengthen one another. And Paul says, I acknowledge my responsibility to you, to your faith, is to make sure what's lacking there and that God has given me the capacity to strengthen. I will do my part to strengthen your faith just as you in living your faith has strengthened mine. Do you see it here in this text? Paul says, this is wonderful. I got good news. You're, you're, you're still in your faith. 
You're glad to hear about us. You're not going, oh man, he's going to come from pastor. Oh, I got, what are we going to do? Here comes Timothy. All right, well, let's sweep that stuff under the rug while he's here. Close that door to that room because we have company. Don't want him to see that. That's in my life. No. Rather, they were glad to see them. They received Paul's emissary, Timothy, and, and Timothy says, oh, they just think about you and they have nothing but good things to say about you. They're living their faith. And Paul says, that's rejoicing for me. And so I've been strengthened in my faith and I can't wait till I can come and improve and perfect and strengthen your faith. That is what God calls us to. Part of the contending for the faith is that we do it together. We strengthen one another. And so the opposition is sure. But we have the power and the strengthening capacity if we are alert and on the ball. All the equipment is there to stand. God is not slack in that respect. He has given us all the weaponry we need to defend our faith. It is fascinating as I read through all these texts, and I'll just read through them. Philippians 2, Galatians 5, Ephesians 6, Ephesians 1, Colossians 2, 1 Thessalonians where we are, 1 Timothy 1, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 12, James 5, Peter, you know, as well as Jude, John. We go through 1 John and, and we, what, it was amazing is how frequently once we have, there, there are three things I see consistently showing up whenever you're called to be diligent, stand fast, contend. These three things keep cropping up. They crop up in Jude too. We've already covered, we're going to see some more of it later on at the end of the book. Um, here's what keeps cropping up, these three things. Um, first of all, that contending for your faith will produce righteousness. And the more righteousness and holiness is in your life, the stronger your faith will be. And so it kind of feeds itself. So when the Bible says that we are to spur one another on to good deeds, to righteousness, that righteousness is one of the elements that shows a growing faith. That more and more of our life it looks like Christ and less like the world. That's evidence that your faith is being strengthened and growing. And I find that consistently as you go through Corinthians and, and well, how can your, and, and Romans and all of these passages, Galatians, it goes all back to righteousness. You used to be like this, but you're not that anymore. Now this should characterize your life. Um, Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. That's at the end of a passage that says, stand fast, hold on, contend, fight. Well, what's the end result? Fruit of the Spirit. Fruitfulness. The fruit of righteousness should be in our life. And so, what is the evidence of growing faith? Is holiness. Secondly, as I read through all these accounts and reread them and their context, what you will find, in, as far as I could tell, every single one of them had, as they called us to stand, withstand, to be established, to be unshaken, to be diligent, to hold fast, to, to endure, to fight, 
to contend, all of them within the verses either before or after them call us to love. I have to conclude that love is both that which will strengthen our faith and the evidence that our faith is growing and secure. When you stop having a loving commitment to your brethren in Christ or to Jesus himself, your faith is wavering. The work of Christ is in jeopardy in your life. Your faith might be in vain. And so if that's not a priority, I want to be with God's people. I want to invest in them. I want to minister to them in, in prayer and in activity and, and uh, use myself up. I love where Paul um, talks about, I am willing to, be, to spend and be spent for you. And then he goes on to say, but the more I love you, the less I'm loved. And that was evidence that his strength of faith and their lack of faith in the Corinthian church. Where's your faith? Is evidenced by your love for one another, for God, in ministry. And the third element that I see consistently in these passages is how often they call us to the coming of the Lord. The real measure of faith is to recognize that in this world is not our hope. It's not the fulfillment of the promises of God. They aren't complete here. That we are holding out for the day of the Lord. We are holding out for the arrival of Christ so that when he comes, we will not be ashamed that we buckled too soon that we were not faithful, we were not loyal to his kingdom, that we became traitors. When Christ comes in his kingdom, when you read through these passages, you'll find these concepts all surrounding these instructions. Stand fast. Stand fast. Endure. Contend. Earnestly. Because the day of the Lord is coming. Hold out. Really, your lifespan is a pretty brief thing. And the older I get, the more brief it seems to have gotten. You know, I used to hear 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds say, oh, enjoy the moment because it just goes like that. And now I hear my wife saying it to my kids about their kids. You got to enjoy these little ones because pretty soon psh, they're going to be off to college. Poof, they're going to be married out of the house. Well, it wasn't poof. It was like 20 years. It was like poof. <laughs> what are we recognizing? What we're recognizing is that our life is really pretty brief. You are called to hold out on the faith for really a very short time. A few decades at all is all. Hold on. For the ministry of Christ is much bigger than your lifespan. And your faith 
we are told, affects others, not just of this generation, but generationally. This is what Hebrews talks about. Why is Hebrews on my list here? Well, those men of faith instruct us in our faith. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who said, we lived it, you live it. And all that we would add to that cloud with our own witness. We stood in our day, you stand in this day. Stand, fast, contend, earnestly, strive, be diligent. I love in Hebrews, let's go to Hebrews real quick. I, I just, that was my, I was really up in arms whether I was going to do Hebrews this morning or Thessalonians is my main text. Hebrews chapter 6. And this is one of the warning passages, but after he gets done with the warning about falling away, which reminds us that your faith is in jeopardy. It is under your will's guidance. But I want to pick up on something else. Let's jump down to verse 11 of chapter 6 of Hebrews. It says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. And by the way, if you look uh, up in the verse 10, there's the other thing about love. You see it there? Your work of labor and love, which you have shown towards his name, you have ministered to the saints, you do minister. There's that facet of loving ministry. It's part of your stand of faith. But here we come and it says that you have the diligence to full assurance of hope. How long? Till the end. There's an end of all things. Why do I need to contend earnestly for the faith? Because there is an end. You are not going to have to contend forever. But you do have to contend now. Because now is when you are going to be engaged with the enemy. The battle will be over one day. The result, the end, is already secured. We already know who the victor will be. It was prophesied all the way back to Genesis. Daniel says, oh, that last empire is going to be smashed by the stone, not cut by human hands. We already know the victory. We already know who's going to, how the, the war is going to end in terms of the kingdom of God. But what is in doubt is where your place is going to be in that. Will you endure to the end? And the right author of Hebrews says, I want you to be around at the end. I want it to last. I want your assurance of hope until the end. And so what do we have to have? Diligence, it says. You need to have that diligence. Show some diligence. Contend earnestly for the faith. And then he goes on to the negative, verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And that's what's going to build all the way to Hebrews 11. When he's going to talk about you have examples to follow. You have the promises of God to stand on. He's going to talk about the better promises, the better sacrifice, the better high priest, all these things. Hebrews is going to talk about why? To establish them, to contend for the faith, because there are those that are going to want to undermine it. 
They're going to want to undermine it by making your life hard. They're going to try to undermine it by breaking relationships with you that you think are, shouldn't be broken, familial or otherwise. They're going to make your life miserable from the outside, but they can't because from the inside, Christ has made you at peace. And they cannot rob you of joy. Cannot do it. Not if you're strengthened in your faith. How important is strength and faith? Critically. Why do you think Satan attacks your faith first? What did he say to Eve? Did God really say? What's the whole point? Are you sure? And he's still doing it today. That is his number one tactic. Are you sure? Are you sure that oh, that Bible's true? When we talk about a strong faith, it can easily be confused with a stubbornness in doctrine. And in fact, Paul has to address this in Galatians especially, but in several of the books that he writes about the Judaizers who are stubborn in a Jewish doctrine. He says, this isn't a saving faith. We're not talking about a, a stubbornness of doctrine, but what we're talking about is a confidence of truth. Thus says the Lord. And so, we are not called to loyalty to a creed of men. Even though that creed may have great historical significance and be a wonderful tool that we can use, it is still a product of men and not inspired. And so we do not have stubborn doctrine, but rather we have a confidence in the truth of God's word. This is the strength of our faith. And this is what Hebrews lays out before us so that by the time we get to Hebrews 12, if you want to turn over to there, and uh, having summarized the race of faith of those around us, he comes to verse 12, and what does he say? Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. When the end comes, there will be no time or opportunity to make it right. The time to make these things right is now. The time to earnestly contend for the faith is today. This is the day to stand in your faith. There will be no testing of the faith. There will be no opportunity to correct the faith at that day, the day of the Lord. It'll be too late. You'll be like Esau. The blessing's already been handed out. You can cry, you can crawl around, you can mope, you can mourn, you can plead, you can beg. And you can get nothing. Because it'll be too late. The author of Hebrews tells us you need to strengthen yourself now. And remember, 
we all have hands that hang down and feeble knees and we're weak. Alone, isolated, and against our enemies, we are weak. These books of your New Testament were written because you are weak. They are written to establish you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to help you contend. This is your armor. You will find all that you need to be rooted, to be built up, to be established, so that you can endure. So you can have straight paths. And there's that righteousness aspect. And, and again, we can go, every passage I have here, we'll find those same elements keep cropping up of loving ministry, of righteousness, and, and you'll just keep seeing it again and again, and of the end. That we're doing this to endure to the end, to the day of the Lord. So there is a how long to it. Please go back to 1 Thessalonians. We'll finish up this concept this morning. Chapter 3. I have called you, as Jude does, to contend for the faith. We're going to be doing that a lot in the weeks to come. This is just the beginning. But I want you to understand that you are not truly isolated if you're a child of God. At the end of chapter 3, there is one other character we want to address. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And there's all three of those elements, bam, 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 right together. But I want you to notice... There's another person involved here. Besides you and the church, there is another person, and that person is Jesus Christ. That ultimately, to grow in faith, you need to come into a deeper, more complete relationship with Christ. He will strengthen and establish your hearts. Faith is the act of trusting him, and God says, I will be faithful to not let you down. You trust me, I will establish you. You open the door for me to do a work in you, I will finish it. I will keep you to the end. But you have to let me. How do I let Christ, God, keep me to the end? Well, how did you let him into your life to begin with? You asked him. You surrendered to him. You were sorry for the world flesh and the devil in you. You asked him to forgive you, and you committed yourself to him. Increasing your faith is not very different from directing your faith first to him. It is that we, like that Paul calls the Corinthians, turn away, Turn to, take off that 
old clothes and put on those new clothes. That we walk by faith and not by sight. Not at the world around us, but what is to come. And thus, when we surrender ourselves to him, he says he will establish our hearts. Ultimately, there is nothing I can do to completely establish your faith. I can give you material and tools. I can give you assistance. I can, I can do all that. But to establish your faith is really something God has to do, and you have to let him. You have to let him do it. How do you let him do it? By investing yourself in what he has called you to, by obedience. And then it says, I'll establish you. Your hearts will be blameless in holiness before God. He will make you increase. He will make you abound in love to one another. Ultimately, the fruit comes by the work of God, not your own work. What we are talking about is contending earnestly for the faith is that which sets you up to let God bless you. You are allowing him to be Lord of your life. King of my life, I cry on you now, one of our songs goes. Thine may the glory be. When we do that, when we take that stand and hold fast and invest ourselves in the ministry of loving one another, invest ourselves in his truth, invest ourselves in remembering that this home, this world is not our home, when we invest ourselves in all of this, Christ says, I'll finish it. I'll establish you. I'll make you increase and abound in love and ministry. For our faith is not just something in decrees and doctrines and teachings of men. Ultimately, our faith is in God. What we are trying to strengthen and defend is a faith in Jesus Christ. When we place our faith there, He comes alongside and establishes it. It is a cooperative arrangement. He gives us all the tools, but he will not force you to pick them up. He has given you all the armor, all the weaponry you need. He will not make you pick them up. You must choose to clothe yourselves in Christ. You must choose to put on the belt of truth. You must choose these, the helmet of salvation, the the armor of God. You must choose to pick it up. He's already provided it. Once you pick them up and put them on, God says, I'll give you the victory. But don't you try to run out there in your own righteousness. Don't you try to run out there in your own stubbornness. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about being stubborn. We're talking about being strong and contending for the faith that Christ has given us and our faith in him. And so we are, don't get sluggish, Hebrews 6 says. Don't get slug, don't get lazy. And that's really, I mean, the author of Hebrews really hit it in the nail on the head. Why do we have to keep being told to contend, to fight, to endure, to stand? Because we get lazy. We stop picking up what God has given us to fight. We think we're on leave. 
our leave, our day of rest will come in his kingdom. Until then, fight. Contend. Stand. With diligence, earnestly, till he comes. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. Lord, we need your help, and you, we know that it's freely offered, and we're ready to receive it. Lord, uh, our prayers that we might be more faithful in picking up the tools and the armor that you have provided us to contend for the faith. And Lord, our prayers that we might have that testimony, not only in this day, but in the days to come, till you're coming. We have fought the good fight. We have finished the course. We have kept the faith. Lord, we know that that testimony doesn't come from a slack Christian life, from a sluggish one, but from an active, diligent one. Lord, we want to commit ourselves anew to that diligence. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.